We turn to the gospel according to Matthew. I'd like to begin at chapter 3 and read a few verses there, and then to chapter 28. Matthew chapter 3 and then Matthew 28, as we read about the baptism of Jesus and then the sending forth of the apostles to baptize. Reading these in connection with uh, the teaching of God summarized in the Heidelberg Catechism concerning the triune God. We're at Matthew 3 at verse 13 to the end of the chapter. We hear the word of the Lord. Matthew 3 verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And are you coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, permit it To be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. If you'll turn to the end of the gospel, chapter 28, reading at verse 16 to the end of the, the gospel account. Matthew 28 at verse 16. And then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Finally, if you take out the Forms and Prayers book once more, we'll look at Short Lord's Day here on page 209. Last time we were looking at true faith, and we confess that the content of true faith is that which is confessed in the Apostles' Creed. And now on page 209, asking about that Apostles' Creed found right above it, it asks in question 24, page 209, question 24, how are these articles, these articles of the Apostles' Creed, divided? And the answer is they're divided into three parts. God the Father in our creation, God the Son in our deliverance, and God the Holy Spirit and our sanctification. And then question 25 asks, since... There is only one divine being. Why do you speak of three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? And we confess because that is how God has revealed himself in his word. These three distinct persons are one true eternal God. Let's ask for God's help. Father in heaven, we bow before you as we come to your word and we pray that you'd speak it to us. We praise you that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, that the man of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And we pray, Lord, then that we would bow before the God-breathed word and that you, 
by the same Spirit who breathed that word out, that you would breathe that word into our hearts, that your Spirit would open our ears to hear and give us hearts to believe, and that we may leave today with greater adoration for the one who is the true and living God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. In Jesus' name, we ask this for your glory. Amen. Well, Congregation of Christ, we make a confession of the Apostles' Creed of God, God the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. One God, eternally existing in three persons. Each person is God, and yet there are not three gods, but one God. This is the doctrine we call the Trinity, and this truth sets Christianity apart from all other religions, from all atheism and secularism, but also from all false religions, from Islam, from so-called Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and so forth, from all cults, from all heresies. Any religion that does not acknowledge one God to be the great three in one, one God in three persons, does not know God, does not know God. We don't claim that we understand it. God is beyond our understanding, isn't he? It's a great mystery here. There's so much about God that is incomprehensible to us. We can never get our minds fully around it. The idea of the eternity of God. Who can know what it means that God has never been without being? The infinity of God, that God is of infinite power. The omniscience of God, that God knows all things. The sovereignty of God, that he perfectly rules all things, and yet we are responsible as creatures. There's many mysteries. God is a glorious and incomprehensible God. We will never know God as God knows himself, but we are called to believe these things because God has revealed himself in that way. And so we come with reverence to God's word. Boys and girls will remember that story of Moses as he came to the burning bush and he heard the words, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And that's how it is as we come to meet our God and his word. We are not gods. We are the dependent creatures. We bow in reverence and we say, Lord, you teach us who you are. And God does. And by his word and spirit, he makes us bold to confess, I believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Let's think about that confession the Lord puts in our hearts and mouths. And notice this morning, first of all, this is a confession of faith. It's a confession of faith. And then I want you to consider, secondly, that this, for all of us, becomes an experience of love, an experience of love. And then finally, if there's any time left this morning, I'd like to say a word about how this is Thirdly, our song of hope. Well, first of all, it's a confession of faith, right? We're saying, I believe in the triune God. The church has always confessed that. The church has always accepted that and believed that. And the church has learned to say it more precisely in the early centuries as various heresies attacked the truth. And the church had to more carefully define things. And so the Athanasian Creed One of the early Christian creeds gives evidence to that that the church had to cut very sharply because the lie sounds so much like the truth and Satan is always trying to sneak in. But the church has confessed this. And I want you to recognize this morning that, brothers and sisters, as we confess the triune God, we're not just confessing what we believe about God, but we are confessing belief in God. I believe in God the Father Almighty. 
I believe in God the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. We're confessing not just some theology about God, but we're acknowledging that this is our God and he's our only hope and our only confidence. He's our only help. We cry out to him. We depend upon him. We surrender to him. He is our life. We believe in this triune God. Now, perhaps somebody would say, you know, church would do better if we get rid of all these distinctions and complicated theology and we wouldn't talk about the Trinity and we'd just get busy with evangelism. But isn't it striking that if you would say, well, then let's go to the most preeminent commission for evangelism, that we would read Jesus telling his church to proclaim the Trinity. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It's remarkable that the triune God revealed himself all the more clearly and dramatically than he ever had before at Christ's baptism. As Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who had come in our flesh, stepped into the water to receive the baptism of repentance and to proclaim that he would identify with us sinners and he would bear our sin, that as he began his ministry there and came up out of the water, that the, that the third person of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit, descended upon him in the form of a dove, And God the Father, the first person of the Trinity, spoke from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And all three persons of the Godhead there together, glorying in this wonderful work. Jesus Christ, as he now gathers a people for himself upon the face of the earth, he wants the name of the triune God written upon them. And so wherever there are believers, it doesn't matter what nation, tribe, or tongue, all over the world, wherever there are people gathered in faith in Jesus Christ, they bear the name of the triune God as they are baptized into that name. In distinction from all the false religions of this world stands God, the Father, Son, and Spirit. You see, the Trinity is what stands at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. This is the Christian church's most distinctive doctrine, that we believe in a personal, even a tri-personal God, one God existing in three persons, each of whom is God, and yet not three gods, but one God. That's the doctrine of the Trinity, boys and girls. That's the teaching of God's word. And it's instructive that when Jesus sends out his apostles in Matthew 28 and tells them to baptize, he says you're supposed to baptize in the name or into the name And name there is singular, not into the names plural, but into the name singular. God throughout the Old Testament revealed his name. He is Jehovah. He is the great I am who I am. This is my name. And now Jesus says you are to baptize into the name. But now he makes dramatically clear that this name is Father, Son, and Spirit. One God in three persons. And if the Apostles' Creed is, as it's believed to be, the creed used by early converts when they stood up to profess faith and to be baptized, and if it is, as it's believed to be, 
the method of instruction used for those early catechumens as they were preparing for their profession. They were taught these articles of the creed. Then isn't it striking that the Apostles' Creed is founded upon the command of Christ, given in Matthew 28, to be baptized in the triune name. And converts would stand to confess, I believe in God the Father, I believe in God the Son, I believe in God the Holy Spirit, because the church had taught them this is who the word of God says God is. So it's not something we can set aside. It's never something we can give up. But the church is commissioned to proclaim this God to all of the world. Now, no one will know it or accept it but by faith. That's true, isn't it? Not because, not because the Trinity is some irrational doctrine that nobody would believe unless they just jumped into the dark. No, that's not what faith is. Faith is not believing something irrational. Faith is believing something revealed. And this is the thing revealed. Upon what ground, you see, upon, upon what basis do we confess a triune God? And the answer is the Bible, right? Catechism asks, why, why do you speak of three? Because this is how God's revealed himself to us. Many people insist today that the doctrine of the Trinity was not the product of revelation, but the fruit of corrupt Greek philosophy that infiltrated the church. Years ago, after my second year of seminary, I was doing an internship in South Dakota, sitting all alone in the parsonage, studying when a couple girls came to the door who bore that name Jehovah's Witnesses, and they couldn't answer some questions I asked, but they came back a couple days later to bring me a pamphlet. Bring me a pamphlet. Should you believe in the Trinity was the title. Should you believe in the Trinity? And I was, I was horrified to read this lengthy pamphlet as it gave this revisionist history about how the early church did not believe in the Trinity, but, but through the influence of a pagan emperor and, and corrupted church councils and political maneuvering, that this twisted theology of the Trinity came into the church. Well, many people are taught that. Boys and girls and the so-called Jehovah's Witnesses are being taught that, even though Jesus clearly teaches Jehovah as Father, Son, and Spirit. We want to know God in no other way than he's revealed himself in his word. And in the Bible, God reveals himself. Now, in the Old Testament, it's true. It was not revealed as clearly as the New Testament. There is progression in God's revelation. It's not that God changes, but that as he walks with his people through history, he has been pleased to reveal himself in increasing clarity. Yet already at the beginning of the Bible, we have indications that God is not unipersonal, one person, but a plurality, right? When he says, let us make man in our image. Who is this us? Who is this our? In Psalm 33, 6, we read that by the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. God created through his word, didn't he? Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And God created in the power of his breath, the spirit that goes out from him. In the Old Testament, we meet the angel of the Lord, who is the pre-incarnate Son of God, who is with his church in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, we read the Spirit of the Lord. Turn to passages like Isaiah 63, and you have, you have the voice of the Lord speaking, you have reference to the angel of the Lord, and you have God rebuking his people because they've grieved the Holy Spirit. 
Holy Spirit is not some impersonal force, as Jehovah's Witnesses want us to believe, some, some mere power like electricity. But God says in Isaiah 63, just as he says in the book of Ephesians, you can grieve the Spirit. He's very personal. And then you have all these parallel references in the New Testament to the three persons of the Godhead in this baptismal formula, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, or in that Trinitarian benediction, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Spirit be with you. All throughout the Bible, you, you meet this God, Ephesians 1, this God of election who gave his own beloved Son and sealed you with his Spirit. Or in uh, Galatians 4, then the fullness of time, God sent his Son, and you'll receive the blessing of the Spirit over and over again. And so, as the Belgian Confession says in Article 9, it's not that we have to, in any case, enumerate all the passages so much as choose out a few of them. They're everywhere. This is the God of Scripture. We can only know him through his Son, Jesus Christ. We can't know the Trinity through mathematical formulations or through human philosophy, but through the revelation of God. Our God is utterly unique. There's really no analogy in our lives that's comparable to this. One in three, three in one. People have tried to come up with analogies to get at this, but there's actually no analogy that sets before us perfectly this reality of God the triune. And so we come by faith. We make this confession by faith. And as we proclaim this triune God to the world, we pray that the Spirit will give them eyes to see and ears to hear, because no one will believe in this triune God but by faith. But when by faith we see, we see God in his word and we believe then this confession of faith becomes also for us an experience of love, an experience of love. Let's consider that secondly this morning. This God we come to experience and all the wonders of his love for us. God is a God of love, right? He's, he's never alone. God has never been alone. In him dwells the fullness of life and fellowship. He's always been the Father who loves the Son, the Son who loves his Father, the Holy Spirit who loves the Father and the Son. He's always been this God of communion, of fellowship, of love. He is from eternity the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. He is from eternity the blessed fellowship of the three persons of the Godhead. The Father's always been the Father. And the Son begotten of the Father was not begotten at some point in time. He's eternally begotten of the Father even though we don't know what all that means. And the Spirit, the Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father. He's breathed out from the Father and from the Son. And those internal operations, we call them, of God the Trinity, those inner workings of the three persons in their eternal relationships, find expression now in their external works as this triune God comes into our lives. The Catechism says we speak of the Father in our creation, the Son in our deliverance, the Spirit in our sanctification. Now, all three persons of the Godhead are involved in every work that God does. At creation, God created through his word, his Son, and in the power of his Spirit. And yet, creation is attributed primarily to the Father, for he is the first person of the Trinity, the originator. He's been originated by no one but the Son, 
is begotten of him, and the Spirit proceeds from him. So it's fitting that creation should arise from the Father. And the second person of the Trinity, he is the primary agent in our redemption. It was not the Father who took on human flesh or the Spirit who died on the cross, but it was the Son in our human nature. He comes in obedience to his Father. And he who is Son fittingly comes to make slaves into sons. And the Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son, in terms of their internal relationships, it's fitting that he is the one now who is sent by the Father and the Son to apply redemption to us, to bring us to Christ, and to give to us all the riches of the Savior. And so we come to know the eternal Trinity in terms of his works towards us. Isn't that remarkable? If the Trinity at times seems very complicated, confusing to us, just recognize this glorious reality. Then in the Heidelberg Catechism, when it says, when it speaks of the Trinity, it says that we know God by his works, by his creation, by his redemption, by his sanctification, by what he has done for us. He shows himself to us. We come to know it as the work of love. So when somebody says, you know, this doctrine of Trinity, the word Trinity is not even in the Bible, which is true. But the church seeks to find language to repeat back to God the things he has taught us, to declare it to the world. Some say the doctrine of the Trinity is kind of irrelevant, it's abstract, it has little to do with my personal life. Nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, You might check out the Belgic Confession today in Article 9, because after it explains about the Trinity, then it says in Article 9, all these things we know from the testimonies of Holy Scripture, as well as from the effects of the persons, and especially from those we feel within ourselves. That's a striking statement. We're confessing in the Belgic Confession that all these things we know from Scripture... We know all this about the Trinity from Scripture and from the effects of this triune God that we feel in our own lives. That can be very dangerous if you misinterpret that. You might think, you know, I guess our religion is just about our conscious experience. Whatever I feel must be true. But that's not what it's saying. It's saying that as you believe the Scriptures, who God is, Father, Son, and Spirit, you reason backwards now and begin to realize I see the work of the Father and the work of the Son and the work of the Spirit in my life. This is the God I need and this is the God I know. There's this subjective confirmation as we realize the effects of this God in our life. Just think of it. Think of the Father. As we believe the word, then we learn to know God the Father as our creator from whom we were made. And we come to recognize that I have no life. I have no existence but by the God who called me into being. And as we know the Father is the great lawgiver, we, we, we have learned to know that we are sinful, defiled creatures. And, and we deserve his wrath and judgment. Yes, I know God like that. But I also know him then as the one who sent his son to rescue me. And in knowing his love for me, I find my security in the hands of a father. I have a father in heaven. I know that every day that his providential care 
better than the best of earthly fathers, is watching over me, is guarding me, that his provisions for my life, better than the the best provider of earthly fathers, he's providing all that I need. I have this experience. I see in my own life the effects of the first person of the Trinity, that he's my father. In fact, you notice in the Heidelberg Catechism, when it says, how are these articles divided, these articles of the Apostles' Creed, it says, first, God the Father and our creation. Not just God the Father and creation. God the Father and our creation. He's my creator. To be baptized into the name of the Father is the sweetest assurance. But the name I know and the name I call upon him is not the name of some artificial intelligence or some blob of energy in the sky. I know God is my Father. Because the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has been given to me as my God and my Father. And then I recognize that I didn't make myself, but I'm completely dependent upon my my Father for my existence. It may seem pretty obvious to a Christian, but not so much if you look around the world. Live in the age of in vitro fertilization and organ transplants and genetic research and stem cell medicine and so forth. And many people have this idea that life is just an accident or life is created by humans. And so it's okay to kill the unborn in the womb. It's okay in Oregon if I want to decide when I'm going to die. But no, the child of God says, this is my father who gave me life. I don't wake up in the morning and say, I have a right to be here, and this is my house and my family and my job. No, I'm his. He made me. He is my father. And I will bow before him and give him glory because I was made for his honor and his glory. And I don't need to wake up in the morning and decide if I'm going to be a boy or I'm going to be a girl because I believe his word. God created man in his own image, in the image of God who created him, Male and female, he created him. So God made me to be a boy or a girl, a man or a woman. He's the creator. He's my father. And I bow before him. And I don't have to be frantic and afraid. I think things are out of control. But I can say this is my father's world. This is my father's world. You see, the Trinity is not abstract. It's very personal. And it doesn't end there. The Son. We think of the Son of God. And that's also an experience of love, isn't it? That as we know the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, from his word, we discover within ourselves these realities that Christ is my Savior who's at work upon my life. That he came to rescue me. That he is indeed the great prophet sent from heaven to reveal God to me and to teach me the secret counsel of God concerning my redemption. I've heard the voice of Jesus in his word saying, come to me, you who are weary and laden, and I will give you rest. I've learned of Christ. What does the Apostle Paul say in in Ephesians chapter 4? But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct, that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. I've been taught by Jesus. I've learned Christ. And we come to know 
also in our experience that Christ is our great high priest, that he gave us life. And he's convincing me every day that he's satisfied for all my sins. He, I pray, ministers to me in the next Lord's Supper and speaks to me by bread and wine through the promises of the word, saying, as real as this, I bore your guilt. This is not some abstract theology. This is God the Son who's ministering to us. And he's not only our prophet and our priest, but our king who daily protects our lives and shields us and keeps us and draws forth our love so that we can say from the heart, I want to honor this Lord Jesus and his sacrifice. I want to honor the price of redemption. I don't want to live thinking I can do whatever I want with my sexuality or with my mind or with my time or with my money. I've been bought with the precious blood of Jesus. My life is redeemed by him. And I owe my life to him then as a living sacrifice, loving in return the one who loved me. And thirdly, then, of the Holy Spirit, that's an experience of love, to know God the Holy Spirit. And we know God the Holy Spirit, not only from his word, but now we're learning to know him through his word in our own personal experience. How else would I have ever believed these things? Me, a a darkened, ignorant sinner, a rebellious one. How would I ever know God through his word if the Spirit had not illuminated my mind and brought life to my dead heart? Why do I believe when so many don't believe? Because I was born in a Christian home instead of Jehovah's Witness home? No. Because God, the Holy Spirit, opened my mind to receive the things that God had spoken. And we learn to know him as the comforter who intercedes to us with groanings and who testifies to our weak hearts that we are children of God who has sealed us for the day of redemption. I believe in God the Holy Spirit. That's not some abstract theological formulation. That is the experience of love. I believe God the Spirit's at work in me. I recognize his work. I see it in my life. And I have the confidence in that my God's not going to quit on me. That he who began the good work in me will carry it on to completion. That God doesn't just pull me out of the hole to leave me to fall back in it again. But he, he comes into my life by his spirit to, to guard me and to keep me and to sanctify me. And to lead me on towards the day of glorification. Do you see it? To confess the doctrine of the Trinity on the basis of God's word, is to experience the triune God as a God of love. We begin through the word to reason backwards and to say all the things that that I see at work in me, all the things that I now recognize I need, this is him, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And so we understand the mysteries of the Trinity, not as some dry theological propositions, but we meet the Father and the Son and the Spirit as persons, as the three persons of the Godhead who have so loved us and who will love us to the end. And brothers and sisters, if that's our experience of love, if we know the triune God through his word, and now we know him in our experience, then this confession, which becomes an experience of love, becomes for us the song 
of hope. Let me say just a word about that thirdly, our song of hope. To confess what we do about the Trinity is to acknowledge that this broken world is not a lost cause. But God who made it, and God who's redeeming it, is the God who will bring it all to completion in glory. One writer puts it this way, the, the confession of the church comprehends the whole of world history. In that confession, the confession of the Trinity, in that confession are included the moments of the creation and the fall, reconciliation and forgiveness, and of renewal and restoration. It is a confession which proceeds from the triune God and leads everything back to him. Those are good words. That's what Romans 11 says, right? For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. For of him, the triune God and the Father's eternal decrees proceeds everything in world history. And through him, through the Son God has sent into the world to redeem and and through the Spirit who he's poured out to give faith and to sanctify And finally, to him, all of this rising completion to the glory of our God. We're confessing an extraordinary history. From the decrees of God in eternity to create a world and to save his elect, to the making of the world, making us in his image, to the fall and to sin, and the coming of the gospel promise, to the years of preparation for the Messiah, to the appearing of the Messiah, to the work on the cross and the resurrection of the dead and the ascension to heaven, the outpouring of the Spirit, to these days in which we live waiting for Jesus to come as the gospel is preached to the world, and finally to the return of Christ and a new heavens and a new earth, this is the work of the triune God. So there is tremendous diversity in the persons of the Godhead and their works, and there is glorious unity. They are intimately related to each other, all of these works. They prepare for each other. They fulfill each other. They depend upon each other. The Father in our creation, the Son in our deliverance, the Spirit in our sanctification. And so there's a circle, all things coming from God and returning to God. But it's not just a circle. It's an upward spiral. Because God, at the end, brings us to a place far higher than we had it in the Garden of Eden. He brings us into a glorious new creation where we are not capable of sinning or ever falling again. Into a new heavens and a new earth. And the Jesus, who in Matthew 28, commissions his apostles, saying, And surely I am with you to the end of the age, now appears in the new creation. God bringing to us a new world. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. And he will dwell with them and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain. For the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. To confess the triune God of Scripture is to confess that the whole of history is his sovereign work. He who made it, he who redeemed it, and he who is purifying it 
will bring about that final day of completion. And brothers and sisters, when we arrive there, to a new heavens and a new earth, then we will adore the triune God like never before. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, how we thank you and praise you for the great work that you have done and the great work that you're doing. We thank you for showing yourself to us in truth through Jesus Christ, our Lord, and by his word, and by your spirit teaching us to know and believe the things that you've revealed about yourself. We thank you that you are a God who is not trying to figure out a way to redeem the world, that you are not a God who, through various failures, might figure out a possible solution. But you are the living God, the triune God, whose works are known to him from eternity, and therefore we are a people of hope. Thank you for bringing us, Lord, into the circle of your love, where Father, Son, and Spirit love one another. We thank you for bringing us into your family, to be loved as your dear children. We pray that we would know the comfort of our triune God, and we'd be pleased to confess it boldly, to defend it always, and to cherish it as we adore you, our holy God, God the Father, and God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.